Architect Exam Prep Programming and Analysis, Module 2, Section 2.3, Site Requirements. Welcome to Section 2.3, Site Requirements. Jumping into it right here, we're going to start with specialty regulations for programming, move into historic preservation, and then wetlands and archaeological sites. So let's go ahead, begin with specialty regulations for programming. A building has more than an economic impact on a region. Potentially, a building can affect the environmental conditions through noise, traffic, wind, waste, and runoff. In order to predict and hopefully mitigate the impact of a proposed project, there are three types of reporting tools used. The first we're going to talk about is an Environmental Impact Statement, or EIS. That is a document required under U.S. environmental law by the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. It is required by any federal government agency undertaking a project that may significantly affect the quality of the human environment. The EIS is a tool used for decision-making, describing the positive and negative environmental effects of proposed agency action and city's alternative actions. Not all federal actions require a full EIS. An EIS report typically has four sections. The introduction, which includes a statement of purpose and also a need of the proposed action to describe the project. Also, a description of the affected environment and areas. Range of alternatives to the proposed actions. Alternatives are considered the heart of the EIS. And finally, analysis. An analysis of the environmental impacts of each of the possible alternatives. So four parts of the EIS, introduction, description, range of alternatives, and analysis. Next up, let's look at an environmental impact assessment. So an EIA. An EIA is a shorter mini EIS designed to provide just enough information to allow the permitting agency to decide whether a full-blown environmental impact statement, EIS, is necessary. The EIA is an evaluation of the possible impact of both positive and negative that a proposed project may have on the surrounding environment. The EIA covers all types of impacts, including the environmental, social, and economic impacts covered in the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, enacted in 1970. A detailed EIA is required for particular types of use and larger-scale developments, the finding of the EIA determines whether the more detailed EIS is required. And lastly, we have the Environmental Impact Report, or the EIR. An EIR is similar to an EIA. Sometimes they are synonymous. As an EIR also serves to inform permitting agencies and the public of a project's environmental impacts, in California, for example, an EIR is required if the lead permitting agency determines that the project poses a considerable environmental impact. The lead agency reviews the project proposal and makes one of the three following determinations. The first one is the negative declaration, or NEG-DEC, as people in the know like to call it. 
So the project has no significant impacts and it can move forward. Uh, an EIR is not required. So this is a really good thing. This is what we're striving for, even though it has negative in the title, giving it a negative connotation, it's actually a good thing. So the negative declaration, no significant environmental impacts, no EIR is required. The second one is a mitigated negative declaration. So the project could potentially have an environmental impact, but if a list of proposed mitigation measures are added to the product, uh, I'm sorry, to the project, then no EIR is required. So not a bad thing here. It just means we're going to have to do a little more work. We're probably going to have to change some of the stuff on the drawings. But the goal is to take our mitigated negative declaration and get it to the level of negative declaration by making changes to the drawings or design. Uh, and then finally, the EIR being required. So the project will have a significant environmental impact and there aren't enough measures to mitigate the impact. So then a full environmental impact report will be required. So that is the EIR. So lead agency reviews the project proposal and makes one of three possible determinations, negative declaration, mitigated negative declaration, and an EIR is required. Also remember in this case, the term environmental impact could refer to any negative impact or effect, including increased traffic, noise, runoff, or waste. Model codes overview. Starting in the early 20th century, building regulations in the United States has been based on model building codes developed by three regional model code groups. The codes developed by the Building Officials Code Administrators International, or BOCA, were used on the East Coast and throughout the Midwest, while the codes from the Southern Building Code Congress International, or SBCCI, were used in the Southeast, and the codes published by the International Conference of Building Officials, or ICBO, covered the West Coast and across to most of the Midwest. Although the model codes in individual states did a good job of responding to their regional differences, by the early 1990s, it became obvious that the country needed a single coordinated set of national model building codes. The three model code groups decided to combine their efforts. In 1994, they formed the International Code Council, or the ICC, to develop codes that would have no regional limitations. The first edition of the International Building Code was published in 1997. Other specialized model codes include the International Building Code, so this is the International Building Code, which is the model building code developed by the International Code Council, or the ICC, it has been adopted throughout most of the United States. This is the code that we as architects use on a daily basis. Depending on the state we are practicing in, we may be using a, our own state's version, which is probably based on the International Building Code, or we may be using the International Building Code directly. It just depends on the state we're practicing in. The next one, the International Fire Code, or the IFC, 
This is a model code that regulates minimum fire safety requirements for new and existing buildings, facilities, storage, and processes. The IFC addresses fire prevention, fire protection, life safety, and safe storage in use of hazardous materials in new and existing buildings, facilities, and processes. The IFC provides a total approach of controlling hazards in all buildings and sites, regardless of the hazard being indoors or outdoors. Next code is the International Plumbing Code, or the IPC. This is a model code that regulates the design and installation of plumbing systems, including the plumbing fixtures in all types of buildings except for detached one- and two-family dwellings and townhouses that are not more than three stories above grade in height. Next code is the International Mechanical Code, or the IMC. This is a model code that regulates the design and installation of mechanical systems, appliances, appliance venting, duct and ventilation system, combustion air provisions, hydronic systems, and solar systems. The purpose of the code is to establish the minimum acceptable level of safety and to protect life and property from the potential dangers associated with the installation and operation of mechanical systems. The code also protects the personnel that install, maintain, service, and replace the systems and appliances addressed by this code. Next code is the International Fuel Gas Code, or the IFGC. This is a model code that regulates the design and installation of fuel gas distribution piping and systems, appliances, appliance venting systems, combustion air provisions, gaseous hydrogen systems, and motor vehicle gaseous fuel dispensing stations. The next code is the International Energy Conservation Code, or the IECC. This is a model code that regulates minimum energy conservation requirements for new buildings. The IECC addresses energy conservation requirements for all aspects of energy use in both commercial and residential construction, including heating and ventilating, lighting, water heating, and power usage for appliances and building systems. The next one here is the ICC Performance Code for Buildings and Facilities. This code presents readers with regulations based on building performance and outcome rather than prescriptive requirements. This resource provides a broader guide for meeting the intent of the international codes encouraging new design approaches. And then we have the International Wildland Urban Interface Code. This is a comprehensive code that establishes minimum regulations for land use and built environment in designated wildland urban interface areas using prescriptive and performance-related provisions. You might be wondering what a wildland urban interface is. That's a rural area that is located near an urban development or an urban city. The next code is the International Existing Building Code. This is a model code intended to provide alternative approaches to repair, alteration, and additions to existing buildings. Then we have the International Property Maintenance Code. This is a model code that regulates the minimum maintenance requirements for existing buildings. The IPMC is a maintenance document intended to establish minimum maintenance standards for basic equipment, light, ventilation, heating, and sanitation, and fire safety. 
The next code is the International Private Sewage Disposal Code. This is a model code that regulates minimum requirements for the installation of new or the alteration of existing private sewage disposal systems. Where a building cannot be served by a public sewer system, the building site must be provided with a system for treating the wastewater generated from the use of plumbing fixtures in the building. Then the International Zoning Code. This is a model code that regulates minimum zoning requirements for new buildings. And finally, the International Green Construction Code. This is the first model code to include sustainability measures for the entire construction project and its site. From design through construction, certificate of occupancy, and beyond. This code is expected to make buildings more efficient, reduce waste, and have a positive impact on health, safety, and community welfare. So there you have it, a list of the model building codes, something we want to be familiar with. Obviously, the International Building Code is the one we use as architects on a daily basis, but it's very important to realize, for example, the plumbing code and the mechanical code, these are separate from the building code. One of the classic questions that I used to deal with in helping candidates pass the California supplemental exam and a source of confusion for them, they would think that the plumbing code or the mechanical code was all contained within the building code. They are separate codes, so make sure we understand that. That'll save us confusion on the exam. Let's move into part B and let's take a look at some dimensional requirements. Moving right into part B, historic preservation. Building codes, including safety and access codes, typically include some special provisions for dealing with historic buildings. Historic provisions of the code try to take into account the special methods and materials found in historic properties. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, is not just a civil rights law, but it's also a historic preservation law. The ADA includes specific provisions in flexibility when dealing with historic properties. The idea is that the accessibility modifications would not threaten or destroy architecturally and historically significant building elements just to increase their accessibility. Part of the International Building Code, or the IBC, also allows flexibility with historic buildings. Section 3407, Historic Buildings, of the IBC states. The provisions of this code relating to the construction, repair, alteration, addition, restoration, and movement of structures and change of occupancy shall not be mandatory for historic buildings where such buildings are judged by the building official to not constitute a distinct life safety hazard. There are four approaches to preserving historically significant structures. And we're going to list these here, most historically accurate to the least. So the first one would be preservation. The second one would be rehabilitation. The third one would be restoration. And the fourth one would be reconstruction. So in preservation, the least amount of changes done to the building in any interventions or additions are as inconspicuous as possible. Rehabilitation, retain and repair historic materials where possible. Replace damaged material. Any additions convey historic values. Restoration. 
remove inconsistent features or later additions and replace missing features in accordance with the restoration period. And finally, reconstruction, brand new construction designed to mimic how something existed in the past. So those are our four approaches. Again, preservation, rehabilitation, restoration, and reconstruction. In historic preservation, protection, maintenance, and repair are emphasized, while replacement is discouraged. Preservation and restoration occurs to buildings that are specially historically significant. In other words, they're either designed by a famous architect or they are an important example of a historical style. These buildings are typically listed and protected through the National Register of Historic Places. Rehabilitation typically occurs on buildings located in a historic district, but aren't individually significant. Prior to undertaking any work, a preservation plan uh, should be developed. Now let's take a look at the process for historic preservation, and it typically follows the process we're going to talk about right now. The first thing is to identify, retain, and preserve historic materials and features. So here we're identifying features that are important in defining the building's historic character and which must stay in order to retain that character. Also under here, including orientation, citing materials used such as wood, brick, metal, features such as roofs, porches, and windows, interior materials such as plaster or iron, Interior features such as trim, wainscoting, molding, stairways, spatial configuration, structural and mechanical systems. The next step here would be to stabilize any deteriorated historic materials or features as a primary measure. So that's going to include structural reinforcement, uh, weatherization or correcting any unsafe conditions. Also, this should be carried out so that it detracts as little as possible from the building appearance. Next step is to protect and maintain historic materials and features. So here, protection ideally involves the least amount of intervention, and this includes maintenance of historic materials such as rust removal, uh, caulking, limited paint removal, also cleaning, so cleaning of windows and the landscape, and finally installing protective elements such as edge guards, gates, and alarms. The next step is to repair historic materials and features. So here we're going to stabilize, consolidate, and conserve. So that's going to include things like repointing brick with proper mortar, patching, splicing, reinforcing wood and metal, also, all work should be physically and visually compatible, and all work should also be identifiable upon close inspection and documented for future research. Next step, limited replacement of extensively deteriorated portions of historic features. So we're only going to do this if all prior steps prove inadequate. And we're going to use surviving prototypes to replace missing or deteriorated areas. We're going to use wood where there was wood, metal where there was metal. It's going to typically exclude any hidden items such as structural reinforcement or mechanical systems. And all work should be identifiable upon inspection and documented for future research. And then finally, 
addressing energy efficiency, accessibility, health, and life safety issues. So we want to take care not to obscure, damage, or destroy character-defining materials or features when upgrading a building to meet code and energy requirements. Also, asbestos lead abatement should be carefully done so that important historic finishes are not adversely affected. During the initial site analysis, certain items of historical significance might be discovered. Issues such as unearthed historical artifacts, remnants of old buried buildings, or the uncovering of a historical event having occurred on the site have significance. So if something like this is discovered, work on the site may have to stop while archaeological work or historical experts and proper handling of any artifacts takes place. Let's talk about preservation of site features. Now, identifying, retaining, and preserving buildings and their features, as well as features of the site, are important in defining its overall historic character. Now, site features can include landforms, such as terracing, berms, or grading, vegetation, such as trees, shrubs, fields, or herbaceous plant material, Circulation systems, such as walks, paths, roads, or parking. Water features, including fountains, streams, pools, or lakes. Furnishings and fixtures, such as lights, fences, or benches. Decorative elements, such as sculpture, statuary, or monuments. And subsurface archaeological features, which are important in defining the history of the site. Now, some suggested methods that we can use to preserve the features of the site include the following. Stabilizing deteriorated or damaged buildings and site features as a preliminary measure when necessary prior to undertaking appropriate preservation work. Protecting and maintaining buildings and sites by providing proper drainage to assure that water does not erode foundation walls, drain toward the building, or damage or erode the landscape. Minimizing disturbance of terrain around buildings or elsewhere on the site, thus reducing the possibility of destroying or damaging important landscape features or archaeological resources. Surveying and documenting areas where the terrain will be altered to determine the potential impact to important landscape features or archaeological resources. Protecting and preserving important archaeological resources. Planning and carrying out any necessary investigation using professional archaeologists and modern archaeological methods when preservation in place is not feasible. Preserving important landscape features including ongoing maintenance of historic plant material. Protecting building and landscape features against arson and vandalism before preservation work begins. In other words, erecting protective fencing and installing alarm systems that are keyed into local protection agencies. Providing continued protection of historic building materials and plant features through appropriate cleaning, rust removal, limited paint removal, and reapplication of protective coating systems and pruning and vegetation management. 
evaluating the existing condition of materials and features to determine whether more than protection and maintenance are required. That is, if repairs to the building and site features will be necessary. Repairing features of the building and site by reinforcing historic materials using recognized preservation methods. The new work should be unobtrusively dated to guide future research and treatment. And finally, replacing in-kind extensively deteriorated or missing parts of the building or site where there are surviving prototypes such as part of a fountain or portions of a walkway. New work should match the old in material, design, color, and texture and be unobtrusively dated to guide future research and treatment. So we're really talking about preservation of existing site features here, preserving what is already there, and those are some ways that we can keep in mind to do that. So a little bit to talk about here. So pre-design and research steps. So we can document the existing conditions. We can program the intended functions or use of the building in the site. We can research the historic nature of the project in the area. We can determine which parts of the building are original. We can evaluate the historic features to determine the appropriate level of intervention needed, if any. And we can document the sequence for construction. And then some code concerns here. So often the code associated with bringing an old building up to meet the current code or standard can be prohibitively expensive. Now, luckily, there are certain exemptions for historic buildings in regard to the code that allow special exemption, exemptions and use of archaic building materials or methods in order to meet the preservation requirements. For example, providing wheelchair accessibility throughout the entire building may not be possible, so we may only need to be required to meet the accessibility requirements of the code at the building entry and by providing it uh, by providing at least one accessible restroom. And it's really going to depend on your state's building code and also the local building department, local building uh, official as well. Moving into Part C, wetlands and archaeological sites. First off, talking about wetlands. Part of performing the site analysis is to determine what portions of the site are buildable. By law, construction is not allowed on a wetland or areas within 100 feet of a wetland. A wetland is an area saturated by surface or groundwater sufficient enough to support vegetation for saturated soil conditions. They are sometimes referred to as jurisdictional wetlands. Now, wetlands form whenever the land gets too wet for upland vegetation and standing water is not too deep for wetland vegetation. So they can form along lakes, rivers, and oceans, as well as inland areas with high groundwater or shallow surface water, such as ponds, springs, or wet meadows. So very important here, wetlands are just not along the coast. They can uh, occur virtually anywhere, especially uh, inland when there's areas of high groundwater, high water table, or shallow surface water. Now, six factors that affect wetland health. The first one, habitat alteration. So converting wetlands to housing and farming, they can easily displace or destroy 
wetlands. And if we think about it, the wetlands are generally flat because they're holding this shallow level of water. So flat, developers like flat. So we got to be careful there with our habitat alteration. Hydrological modification, levees, dams, and other unnatural structures can directly affect the wetland area, such as upstream development, diversions, or additions of surface water. Biological invasion, non-native species that are inadvertently or intentionally introduced by people into a wetland can proliferate, displacing native species and altering wetland functions and services. Good example of this is the uh, python infestation in the Everglades in Florida always seems to be in the news lately and how it's essentially out of control. Pollution. Manufactured chemicals that are spilled, leaked, or dumped and also an overabundance of nutrients, sediment, native vegetation, additional water can disrupt the fragile ecosystem. Overharvesting. So taking and removing native plants and fish species. And climate change. Changes in annual rainfall amounts and temperature. So if we're going to have less rain, that's going to affect the wetland. If we're going to get more rain, that's going to affect the wetland. Wetlands are very uh, delicate and fragile ecosystems. Moving into archaeological sites. Determining whether a project is on a known archaeological site is crucial during the programming phase because working on a known archaeological site can have significant impacts on the goals of the project from the initial design all the way through to the construction process. So if we're working on a known archaeological site, it's important to follow the local, state, and federal laws and regulations. The four most commonly encountered are National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, the Antiquities Act of 1906, Archaeological Resources Protection Act of 1979, and the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that, my friends, will wrap up Section 2.3 and also Module 2 as we work our way. We're halfway through our modules. My name is David Doucette. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. I will see you inside Module 3.